Uh, welcome to Coast. My name is Neil. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we have a real special guest uh, here this morning. We sent out a little uh, teaser. Uh, for those of you that, that like Facebook, we sent out a teaser on Facebook. And, it, and then we said, uh, there's a mystery testimony guest tomorrow. Do you have any guesses as to who it is? And we got some strange guesses. Uh, one, someone guessed the Pope. Uh, someone else guessed uh, Regis Philbin. Uh, anyway, none of those are right. But I can assure you that this is uh, certainly a special individual uh, whom we have been praying for for a long time now. Uh, Eric Paulson battled a disease, a syndrome known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome uh, for a number of weeks and months. And uh, he's here today to tell us about his experience going through that moment in his life. It was uh, very much a tragedy in his life and at in moments, in, in periods of that time, it was uh, something that was a life and death situation. And we rose up as a church, and I know many other churches and family members and friends prayed for him. So I want to bring Eric Paulson up and share a testimony about how God's been working in his life. Come on over, my friend. Good to see you, bro. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, everyone for having me here this morning. Um, when Pastor Neil asked me to give a testimony about my experiences with this uh, syndrome, he reiterated a number of times for me to keep it PG-13. Um, I don't know, I guess he knows me really well. PG-13, Eric. PG-13. PG-13. Um, so it's hard for me to believe that this all started with sort of a silly bike accident. I was riding my bike with my friend down to uh, uh, Doheny uh, State Beach and then crashed on the way back and um, got some cuts that required some medical attention and from there um, got uh, uh, an infection and then from the infection had an allergic reaction to some medication I was given and before I know it, I was diagnosed with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And um, I remember when the, the um, physician's assistant at the emergency room in Mission Hospital said, you know, I think you might have this syndrome. I was covered with hives all over, um, and I had sores all in my mouth, and my throat felt like it was closing in. And so she gave um, April and me this information, and then she said, but let me go get the doctor. And of course, as soon as she left, April and I grab our phones, and we open up Safari, <laughs> Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And so this article pops up, and the first line says of the story I'm reading, for those people who survived Stevens-Johnson syndrome, <laughs> and of course I'm thinking, Oh, wow, I thought they were just going to, like, give me some cream for this, and I was going to leave. Like, okay, this is a lot more invo involved, apparently. So, um, and even then, you know, the, the doctor came in and told me I had this syndrome, and I thought, well, okay, you know, things aren't so bad at this point. And then they progressed pretty rapidly, and I ended up um, in the burn unit at UCI, and um, the only way I can really describe it to anyone is, I mean, it, it, it really feels like you're being burned and everything uh, about your skin looks like you've been burned. And that's why they put you in the burn unit. And yet, you know, I really hadn't, hadn't been burned. But um, I can remember through some of the worst of it, I mean, I was covered all over my body with what, what looked like burns. And 
I just remember looking down at my body and just feeling completely overwhelmed um, by this syndrome and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, like this is very, very serious. And the doctors really, through through the worst of it, were, were not very encouraging. They were, um, I think, very candid with me. And, and it was a very frightening time. And I was very grateful um, to have the support of my wife, of course, who was there as much as she could be many hours and then taking care of the kids. And my brother came down and was with me. Um, and I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, well, what, what was it like, like at the, at the worst moments? And um, I know, you know, many of you have ha also had, um, you know, life-threatening situations in your life. And so I don't know how it is for other people, but I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't really do a lot of praying. I didn't really do a lot of thinking, you know, God help me in this situation. I, I really was, I was just, I would sit there and I would count. Um, you know, I'm just kind of one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. I mean, I was at that point where it was like all I could do was sort of grasp for a breath and think, okay, I've got to get through the next five. I'm going to get through the next five and the next five. And as things got a little bit better then, I started to, to realize how many people were praying for me and supporting me and, um, you know, I really wasn't allowed to have a lot of visitors, um, but at one point, Pastor Neil came to visit me, and he brought me all the cards that all of you had written, and I have to tell you that it was, like, overwhelming to me, and I'm going to admit I cried, um, and, uh, and it was hard for me to read them at first. It was like my eyes burned and, and everything. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't read so well. But especially once I got home from the hospital, just kind of going through all of those cards from this church, I mean, it was so encouraging um, and lifted me up so much. Um, and several of you included cards from your children, which was just great. I mean, I loved it. The little pictures and trying to write out something. And I thought, oh, it's just great. Thank you so much. Um, and so, you know, I would say, you know, my, my testimony isn't so much about, you know, how much I reached out to God and God answered my prayers as much as God answered my prayers even when I wasn't praying. God was faithful to me even when I wasn't super faithful to him. Um, and I also sort of realized after this experience all the things that other people went through with me in it, and especially my wife who... You know, I didn't even honestly consider so much initially all of the emotions she was going through and the things she was feeling and how difficult it was on her because as I was sitting there very much considering like um, when my oldest son Josh came to see me in the hospital feeling like, wow, that might be the last time I ever see my son. Um, she's dealing with, wow, I might lose my husband. And... Um, in all of that, um, I, I want to just thank you so much for the support that you gave us. And there were so many other people because that really is, in my mind, um, how we can often feel the love of God is through other people and um, how they share God's love with us through the things that they do. Um, so I want to thank you so much for that. Um, I will say, you know, a lot of people ask, um, well, how are you feeling now? I, I feel really pretty good. Um, I, I still, 
I'm not 100%. I get tired really easy, and I'm, I'm still on some medication. I hurt inside a lot. It's just like an achiness and, and everything. Things still taste really funny to me because the, the burns had gone way down into my throat, and, um, and so, like, my throat isn't all healed. Um, my voice gets tired and scratchy. So there are things that are still kind of frustrating to me, my skin. People will say, oh, you look great. And, and part of the syndrome I, apparently is that your face usually looks like you got some kind of chemical peel or something, like you look fabulous. Um, <laughs> but, but the rest of my body, um, the rest of my body is um, kind of all splotchy, my skin and everything, uh, just like discolored and that kind of thing. They said it'll take, you know, up to a year maybe for all of this to go away. And so that that's kind of frustrating to me because it's like, okay, we got summer coming up. I want to go out with my family and do things. And I don't feel 100% well. I have to be careful about being outside. But obviously I'm, you know, very grateful to be in the position I am um, and to have survived. Some of you have also asked. I did ask at one point for prayer about um, a young man who was brought in with Stevens Johnson syndrome right at the end of uh, when I was there, and, and I don't really have an update on him. I, I know I went and I ch chatted with him, and he, he looked pretty bad, but um, and I'd left my cell phone number with his parents, but um, they, they haven't called me back, so I don't have any update on him. Um, but uh, again, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here and to be able to share a little of my story with with you. I'd be happy to chat with anyone, uh, you know, after the church. I want to thank you so much for um, your outpouring of love to me, to my family, and the way um, that you showed God's love to us. So. Thank you, Eric. We love you, man. And uh, April, and, and to the boys, uh, we're just, we're really glad that, uh, that Eric made it through. And I know it was a very difficult time uh, he, he, much, much darker and more painful than Eric led on. He, he gave a good PG-13 version there. Uh, it was very dark and very painful, but God was with you, and he's been good to you. He's good to all of us. Amen? Hey, grab your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. I'm so glad that uh, Eric and April came today to, to share about uh, what, went, what went on in their lives. Um, it was uh, no doubt a great tragedy that befell them and their family. I remember walking into Mission Hospital, that one of the very first pictures that Eric uh, showed. And I remember walking into Mission Hospital, and as I, as I approached Eric, he told me to to stay away from him because they didn't know the, the, the total nature of the disease yet. And he, he just kind of held his hand up. And I remember looking into your eyes and uh, seeing in Eric's eyes uh, great fear, great fear, as anyone would have, were they to be given the news that uh, you have Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And uh, when you look that up... <laughs> Some of those first words are, those that survived this, and then they, it goes on to describe it. It was a very serious syndrome, a very serious disease. It was a trying number of weeks and continues to be a trying number of months in recovery for him. Um, but you know what? God is with Eric and April, I know that, and we're seeing God use this tragedy for good. Coast Bible Church is, uh, as Doug 
indicated, um, we are certainly very aware of tragedies, both locally and beyond today, on a day like this. Locally, we, we heard from Eric this morning, locally we know of uh, people who have, have uh, died very untimely deaths. We think of uh, Kiana, we continue to uh, mourn her passing and uh, just rally around her family as she died a young death to cancer. And also Katya in Haiti, our missionaries, who also was taken at a very young age, the house mom, to some 70, 80 children, orphans in Haiti. Tragedy has struck uh, at the heart here at Coast. And it's also struck in our nation. Uh, it wasn't too long ago in December that we sat glued to the television watching the uh, horrible shooting from Sandy Hook Elementary School. And just this week, we looked as a nation and we saw two more great tragedies that came upon us with the Boston Marathon bombing and also the massive explosion at the Texas uh, fertilizer plant that decimated a whole community and killed many people. We're very, very aware of and familiar with tragedy. We're, we're seeing it everywhere. And we know that great tragedy can take lives. Great tragedy can take lives. And in those great moments of despair, it's all too easy to look up and to look at God and to wonder, what are you up to right now? What are you up to in my family as we go through this tragedy? What are you up to in our community as we experience this together? What are you up to in our nation, God, as you allow these things to happen? The Bible is God's Word. And it's a story about Him and about His people and about His plan. And this book is filled with stories of tragedy absolutely filled with them, filled with stories in which evil took root for a time and wreaked havoc in our lives, in the lives of people, in the lives of families, in the lives of nations. The Bible is filled with stories of tragedy. But while the great tragic stories in the Bible, it shows how they wreaked havoc for a time, and at times they even took lives of those who were in their wake. But the scriptures also tell, time and again, of God's persistent response to tragedy. How does God respond to tragedy? I want you to take a couple notes today. How does God respond to tragedy? Write this down on your outline. God uses tragedy to awaken, awaken our spiritual sensibilities Either to save the lost or to refocus and preserve the lives of those who already know him. I'll read that again. God uses tragedy to awaken our spiritual sensibilities. Either to save those who are lost or to refocus and preserve the lives of those who know him. There are fewer stories in the scripture that illustrate this point more than that which is found in Genesis, in the story of Joseph. Many of us know this story well, but I want to retell it again, that we might hear it from a different 
vantage point. Joseph was uh, one of the, the great uh, sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, one of 12 brothers. And Joseph, at the time that we come upon his story in Genesis, uh, in the story that we're going to read here in Genesis, uh, he was about 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And some years later, he came to, uh, to readdress with his brothers what had happened to him. The backdrop is this. When Joseph was 17 years old, he started having dreams. He started having visions. And he would tell his brothers and his father about the dreams and about the visions. And he would tell them that in his dreams, that he was a ruler, a king of sorts. And that he was ruler over his brothers. Well, certainly not being the oldest of the brothers... The rest, uh, Joseph was, uh, was not the oldest, and so the rest of the brothers looked upon him and thought, how could you be our ruler? And his brothers, they turned against Joseph because of how often he would speak to them about his dreams, about these dreams of leading them one day. They hated Joseph. It says in Genesis 37 verse 4, and they could not speak peaceably to him. And one day, while the, while the rest of the brothers were out tending to their father Jacob's flock, Jacob asked Joseph to go out and to find his brothers. And so Joseph went a-walking. And he came upon his brothers. And we meet up with the story in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 18. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18. Now when Joseph's brothers saw him afar off, Even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams then. Can you imagine? Brothers speaking about a plan to kill one another. Well, now wait a minute. If you have a brother, you might not want to answer that question. Um, I'll, I'll spin it another way. Can you imagine conspiring to kill someone? Sometimes bro- those brothers can, you know, really duke it out. I didn't have a brother, so I was fortunate. I let my sister beat up on me. Uh, but hey, brothers, they can, they can be at odds with one another. And here we see brothers conspiring to kill another one. Incredible evil. Thankfully, one brother's head, a cooler head, prevailed, but just for a moment. Rather than killing Joseph, his brother Reuben suggested that they simply leave him in a pit. And Reuben had secretly wished, as he made this suggestion, that he could come back to the pit and save Joseph. Take a look at verse 21. But Reuben heard it, he heard the plan, and he delivered... Joseph out of their hands and he said let's not kill him hold on and Reuben said to them shed no blood just cast him into the pit which is in the wilderness and don't lay a hand on him that he might uh, and he he said this and this is the side comment that Reuben might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father so there there the narrator Moses is saying and here we see what was behind Reuben's suggestion he wanted to have his brothers put him in the pit and walk away and Reuben was going to come back and save Joseph. 
shed no blood, he says in verse 22. Cast him into the pit and don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben was thinking that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. And so it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors which was on him, and they took him and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. So there you have it. The brothers did not slay him first and throw him in a pit. Instead, they decided just to toss him in the pit without food, without water, their intent being that he would starve to death, that he would die of thirst. But as the story goes, Reuben, who was keeping an eye on the situation, Reuben wandered off. Perhaps he had an errand to do. We don't know. It doesn't indicate it in the text. But he walked off for a time. And as he walked off, the brothers continued talking about what to do with their dreaming brother, Joseph. Take a look at verse 25. And then they sat down to eat a meal. And then they lifted their eyes and they looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened to Judah. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph, the the traders did, they took him to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go now? What shall I do now? Reuben's intent was to save Joseph from the pit. And now those good intentions were gone. Judah had risen up and had aroused the brothers again for another conspiring plan. And the brothers dove deeper and deeper into sin and treachery. They traded Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. To a band of Ishmaelites passing through, heading on their way to Egypt. But now there was a problem. Not only was it a problem that they wanted to kill their brother Joseph. Not only was it a problem that they wanted to leave him to die of starvation in a pit. And not only was it a problem that they eventually just sold him off into slavery down to Egypt. But now they had another problem on their hands. You see, they were away from home. Tending their father's flock. And Jacob, their father, was back at home. And when they all returned together, he would be expecting 12 sons, not 11. And so the brothers started to talk. And they started to wonder, what should we say? What can we say? Can we think of something that makes something up, a a story of some kind? And so they conspired again a fourth time to do harm to their own family. Take a look at chapter 37, verses 31 to 36. So then, so they took Joseph's tunic, and they killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. 
And then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, Father, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And Jacob recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob, Joseph's father, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his waist and he mourned for his son many, many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now when the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and Cap- now, now the Midianites had sold Joseph to, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. So there you have it, full circle. They tried to kill him, they tried to throw him into a pit, they sold him into slavery, and then they lied about it. And they told their father that Joseph had died of, of an attack by a wild beast. Murder. An attempt of murder. Treachery. Slavery. Lies. Deceits. What a family, huh? I mean, you thought your family was dysfunctional. This is a dysfunctional family right here. Great tragedy. Unbelievable tragedy. A great evil had come upon the family of Jacob, the father of all Israel. In fact, tragedy doesn't even begin to describe the pain and the anguish that Jacob must have felt at the apparent slaying of his son. I can only imagine how Reuben must have felt. The eldest brother who had tried to spare his brother Joseph... What was Reuben doing for the next foreseeable future? As he was endlessly pressured by his brothers to keep quiet on the true nature of Joseph's demise. Keep quiet, the rest of the brothers would say. Don't tell dad. Don't tell Jacob what really happened to Joseph. Here was a family who for the next set of decades, scholars estimate about two decades, lived a complete lie to one another. Truth was far from this home. Their house was a house of deceit and treachery. But while Joseph's brothers conspired to do evil, God was watching. And God was not absent. In fact, as the story goes, we begin to see that God was going to use this great tragedy to preserve Not only Joseph's life, but the lives of his entire family. As the story goes, and I'm going to go rapid fire here just to bring us up to speed where I want to take us next. Joseph goes from slavery. He's sold to the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, and they take him down to Egypt. And while in Egypt, he becomes the property of Potiphar. Later, Joseph rises in prominence. He uh, runs away, he leaves Potiphar, and he finds, he finds himself in jail. 
And as he's in jail, he begins to hear word about dreams that are being had in the community. Dreams of those within the jail, cooks and and bakers and chefs within the jail. And then he hears ultimately of the dreams of Pharaoh. And Joseph, being a man of dreams, begins to properly interpret these dreams over and over again. From the jailhouse and all the way up to the highest echelons of the Egyptian kingdom. Joseph, time and again, would properly interpret dreams. And so he was lifted higher and higher and higher up into prominence. Soon, he properly understood and interpreted Pharaoh's dream, the leader of Egypt. And Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph's capabilities and spiritual insight that he appointed him as second in command over all of Egypt, over all the land. Joseph's foresight was so keen that he even began to understand that that a famine would come into the land. And so Joseph foresaw this famine. He foresaw a time in which there would be seven years of great drought. And being second in command in Egypt, he began to, as a wise leader would, he began to collect all the grain that he could. He began to save it up, to store it up in storehouses. And, And Joseph led this effort in which all of Egypt raised up great storehouses of grain in preparation for the famine that was to come. The keeper of the grain was none other than Joseph himself, who sold grain to the people. And as the famine approached, it became very devastating. The first year or so went by, and people made do with what they still had on their land. But by the second year, it had wreaked havoc all throughout the land of Egypt, Arabia, and Canaan. It was widespread, and people were hungry. They had heard that there was grain in Egypt. Jacob, Joseph's father, heard that there was grain in Egypt. And so he sent his sons, a delegation of his sons, to go to Egypt to buy grain. Thinking all the while, Jacob was, that his son Joseph had been slain many decades ago, two decades ago. It wasn't even a thought on his mind that Joseph was in fact very much alive, second in command of all of Egypt. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, sends a delegation of the brothers down to Egypt. And on their first trip down, Joseph recognizes them. He sees his brothers. They come before him as he, as he stands before the storehouse. They come before him and they bow down and they say, Sir, may we please have grain? May we please buy some grain? They didn't recognize him. Joseph, in all of his splendor now, he was wearing his, his incredible Egyptian garb. He had, uh, what was it, Erica, a chemical, wa- what was it, a chemical wash on his face? Makes you look good, I guess. I don't know what that is. He looked amazing, Joseph did, and his brothers didn't recognize him. Joseph hid his identity that first visit. He gave the brothers a, a measure of supply good measure of supply, but he hid his identity from them and he sent them back with a task to bring back their other brother, Benjamin. And on their second trip back, the brothers went back to their father and they came back, this time all of them, they came back to Egypt. They came back before Joseph, though they did not know his name or identity. And they bowed before him again and pleaded with him for grain. We pick up the story now. In Genesis 45. Turn to Genesis 45. Take a look at verse 4. 
This is the second visit. The brothers are standing before Joseph seeking grain. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And so they came near. And he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Stop right there. He reveals himself to them. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery, whom you talked about killing, whom you conspired to throw in a pit and let me die of starvation and thirst. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. We might expect in this junction of the story uh, for the next line to go something like this. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt, and because you did this, I am condemning all of you to spend the rest of your lives in prison. Or maybe, I am Joseph, your brother, who, sold, who you sold into, e- into slavery in Egypt, and because of your betrayal, you will now serve me as slaves forever. Or perhaps, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt, into slavery, and because you sought my death, I now sentence you to death. We might expect any of those statements right there in, in verse 5. Because we're, we're sinners. People are sinners. And uh, people take revenge. Fathers take revenge uh, when their honor, uh, the honor of their daughter or their son is disparaged. People take revenge on others. Brothers take revenge on brothers. And it would not be surprising in the least to see in this moment a man who looks upon his brothers who had previously sold him into slavery and for that man to want to wreak havoc upon their life, to inflict pain upon the ones who inflicted pain upon you. But that's not how Joseph responds. In fact, that's far from how Joseph responds Far from an instinct of self-preservation that somehow a wound inflicted upon them will somehow make up for the wound that was inflicted to Joseph. Instead, Joseph responds much differently. Take again a a look at verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come near me. So they came near and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But now, now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you, my brothers, to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, brothers, but God sent me here. And he has made me 
a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all of the land of Egypt. So hurry and go up to my father Jacob and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry for you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Come to me, Joseph says. Joseph took all of the injustice that came upon him. He took all of the tragedy that was around him. And he, he looked at it. And instead of looking at it as with a view to all that is evil about it, he looked in it for good. He looked evil in the face and asked, how can my God redeem this moment in my life? On the back of your outline, a few things are noteworthy about Joseph's response. A few things are very noteworthy. Number one, Joseph acknowledged that his brother's intentions were evil. He did not ignore what they did or pretend like it never happened. Joseph acknowledged that his brother's intentions were evil. He did not ignore what they did or pretend like it never happened. He was in a real relationship with them right then and there. He wasn't ignoring what they did. He wasn't pretending like it never happened. No, he said, look, you did this to me. You did great evil to me. This tragedy befell me because of you. He didn't ignore it. He acknowledged it. But, number two, number two, but rather than taking vengeance upon them, and this is a quote from Chuck Swindoll, Joseph allowed his theology to eclipse his human emotions and bad memories. Rather than taking vengeance upon them, Joseph allowed his theology to eclipse his human emotions and bad memories. That is to say that Joseph took all that he knew about God, all that he had studied from his fathers and from their fathers and their fathers, from Abraham, from Isaac, and from his father Jacob. He took all that he knew about his God and plugged that theology, plugged the knowledge of who God is and what he is about and what his nature is like, and what he wants our nature to be like. He took that theology and he used it to calm and to ultimately eclipse his human emotions and bad memories. The emotional side of Joseph wanted to take vengeance, make no mistake. Just as your emotional side would want to take vengeance in a moment like that. But Joseph was a man after God's own heart. He thought about God and what he would have him do in the midst of this tragedy. And so number three, we can say that Joseph looked beyond the surface. Joseph looked beyond the surface of his personal tragedy, seeking to understand how God wanted to use it for good. He looked deeper. He looked underneath. He saw what happened to him, but, it, but he didn't just look at the circumstances. He didn't just look at what was presently in front of him. He looked deeper with spiritual eyes, with greater spiritual sensibilities. 
I've highlighted on your outline Genesis 45, 5 to 8. I want you to pay close attention to the shading and the bold as we read it one more time. Genesis 45, selections from verses 5 to 8. Joseph says to his brothers, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here. But God. Three times Joseph says it was God who sent me. It was God who sent me. It was God who did it. Three times he indicates why God allowed that. To preserve your lives. To preserve a posterity for you. To save your lives. The emphases there, the three fold emphases of these statements are not by coincidence in the scriptures. They're there for us to to have the, la- the, the, the lights flash and for our eyes to be fixated on what is being said right here. Not only did God note, not only did Joseph note that God sent him to Egypt three times, but Joseph also spiritually discerned why God did it, to preserve life. Not just his family's life, but the lives of millions in all of Egypt, Arabia, and Canaan who are coming to him in the midst of the famine. Joseph said, my abandonment, my slavery, my near-death experience, God allowed all of it that I might save many. Joseph preserved Egypt through the famine. He preserved his brothers and his fathers. His personal tragedy was meant to bring life to millions. Here was a man who got it. He could have easily sulked in his trials. He could have easily turned his fist to God and cursed God. He could have easily given up and say, I I, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm just going to waste away now. But Joseph looked deeper into the spiritual sense of what had happened to him. He was a man of great wisdom and a man of great compassion. In the final summary of this tragedy, yet redeemed, he tells his brothers once more in the final days uh, after his father's death in Genesis 50 verse 2. He says, as for you brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. There again, God meant it for good. God sent me. God sent me. God did it. And again, the purpose statement to save many people alive time and time and time again. Joseph had eyes to see the reason behind his tragedy. When tragedy strikes we, we look up and we wonder, is God being malicious? Uh, but God did not desire Joseph to suffer. 
Joseph puts it beautifully in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, God meant it for good. And that ultimate good, that ultimate end, would be not only the reconciliation of his family, but the saving of countless millions of people. Joseph experienced incredible suffering, no doubt, and his brothers committed an unbelievably cruel act. But that suffering had an ultimate end and an ultimate purpose, and so God allowed it to happen. Because God knew the the telos, he knew the end, the purpose for which it was going to be experienced by Joseph. And so God sent Joseph to Egypt. And this story of tragedy should remind us of at least one more story of tragedy. A story which Peter recounts in Acts 3, it's on your outline, we'll read it now. Acts 3, Peter speaking to the Jews who had killed Jesus. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered. You delivered him up, and you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One. You denied the Just One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses but then he, he says this, there's, a, there's an excursus that continues, but he finishes up in verse 26, and I want to close with this verse 26 here. He says, but to you first, Peter's still pointing at the Jews, his fellow countrymen, he says, but to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Do you see the highlight on your outline? God sent him. I don't know that Peter was thinking about the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. I'm sure it was on his mind as he spoke in verse 13 of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Knowing full well that when Joseph recounts his story of tragedy, Joseph says three times, God sent me. God sent me, God sent me, and he sent me to save, to save, to save. Peter, looking at those who killed Jesus, he says, even though you did this, God sent him, and he sent him to save, to save you first. Evil brothers conspired to do away with their brother Joseph. But God knew the end of the story. And while he allowed these evil brothers to have their way with Joseph, God sent Joseph into Egypt to save millions. And in the same way, evil men conspired to kill the Holy One, the Just One, the Prince of Life, Jesus Christ. But God knew the end of the story. And so while he allowed those evil men to have their way with Jesus, God sent Jesus to the cross To bring salvation to the whole world. Tragedy to be sure. Tragedy takes lives. No doubt. But here we read. And the testimony of scripture is. That tragedy doesn't just take lives. Tragedy is what saves lives. It was Joseph's story. It's our Lord's story. Now it's Eric's story. 
And it's our story. How we're going to use our tragedies to save others. What would God have me do on account of my tragedy? Whose life can I help save? Whose life can I help preserve? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when great tragedy strikes, we're in much pain. You've seen our pain and anguish, God. And you know it. You know what is heavy on our hearts. You know what causes us to cry and mourn. You know what causes us great pain and anger and frustration. Oh God, would you help us in the midst of tragedy to not just say, woe are we, And for us to just wonder how much is going to be taken from us. But God, may we not just worry about what's going to be taken in tragedy. But what can be saved through tragedy. That someone might hear our story as we share it. As we speak about how you have been with us. Walking with us. How your church has been right next to our side. Walking beside us. How your people brothers and sisters in Jesus, have lifted us up in the midst of tragedy. And the God that that story would take the great tragedy that befalls us and would use it for good. The tragedy could be used to save and to preserve. We thank you that that's what you did through your son Jesus. We pray that that's what you would do through our lives now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.